welcome to There's More to the Quote. I'm your host, Lauren, and together we will dig into the origins of our culture's most repeated quotes and how they inform the way we relate to ourselves and each other. Thank you for joining me for episode two of There's More to the Quote. Today, we're discussing the quote, I wish today's music was as good as it was back in the day. And of course, there are several variations of that quote. But before we get started, I want to add a new segment to the podcast called Random Quote of the Podcast. This is a podcast about quotes, and I thought it would be nice to uh, mention some quotes that I see when I'm online, maybe I'm watching a TV show and I hear a character say a quote, and I just think it's interesting. It won't have anything to do with the topic necessarily, but I think it's an interesting quote. So today's random quote of the podcast is, whatever you think you can't do, just know that there is someone who is confidently doing it wrong right now. They have no plans at doing it better either, and people are paying them to do it. Please believe in your own excellence as much as they believe in their mediocrity. And that is from Marley of the Dangerous Woman Agency. Online, social media, it's at DangerousWCO. So what is it about music from the past that always seems better? And I know some of you are saying, because it is better. (laughs) Many people would argue with you today that It's no way that R&B or hip hop or anything is as good as it used to be in the past. So I wanted to dig deeper and find out about the variations of that quote and just how long people have been saying it in this country. So did the music that we call classic music, good music, did it suffer from the same analysis when it was the sound of the day? So what I did was I did some research. I looked up some articles, looked in some magazines, a lot of Jet and Ebony. And I found some other books and I wanted to see how people felt about music throughout the years. And so because there are so many genres and it's no way I can cover all of them, I'm going to focus on a little bit of blues, some jazz, some R&B, some soul, a little bit of disco, you know, other little genres thrown in. So I broke up the podcast into three sections. The first section is slop and sex. And you'll understand why soon, but it's basically about sex mostly. The second section is Pastime Paradise. Shout out to Stevie Wonder. Of course, that's about us living in the past. And the past is always so much better. And the last section is the evolution of genres. How the music we hear today is nothing but just an evolution of what existed in the past. So let's start off back in 1959 when jazz Uh, In 1959, jazz was pretty, still a popular genre. And the great Louis Armstrong, he did an interview with Ebony Magazine in 1959. And it was just a typical interview, but they gave him some like spitfire questions. They asked him some questions and he gave a quick answer. And one of the questions that they asked him was, what are his thoughts on modern music versus old time jazz? Not sure if they meant modern jazz when they said the music, but they asked him and he said, Well, there's just two types of music, good and bad. And I I agree, even though that is subjective. But then he went on to say, bop is slop. And what he's referring to is bebop music. 
and slop to me i don't think unless there was in the 1950s uh a slang term for slop i think he's i'm thinking of pig slop i, I don't think he liked bebop music but i'll be mentioning bebop a little bit later but i wanted to start off with louis armstrong because i think louis armstrong has this the attitude that a lot of people have a lot of us have you know when the new generation comes along doing music that we loved before and it's just not the same we think like oh this is horrible even though he said it's good and bad music and it's slop music which is bop so he really didn't like bebop music so i thought well you know what let me go back a little further the 1959 so we're still talking about jazz let's go back to 1921 so I was looking around trying to find any old publications or magazines that talked about jazz. And I found one. So it was a publication called the K-10 Monthly. And they had an article in 1921 called The Origin of Jazz. And jazz is really new in 1921. And it was by, the article was by Madge R. Caton. Now, just a slight history. So Madge R. Caton is the granddaughter of Hiram Rhodes Revels. The first uh, black man to be a U.S. senator during Reconstruction. So I think some of that, her being a part of a elite family at that point, I think might have influenced her opinion on jazz music in 1921. Now the article starts off immediately just going at jazz. It says, "Jazz, it is strict rhythm without melody." But she talks about jazz in america in new orleans but then jazz started to move up made his way to mississippi going to chicago like it's traveling across the united states and now it's one of the top new genres in the country and she thought that bands used to be respectable but jazz bands were the total opposite and the one thing that they didn't like about jazz is that jazz made people move she says they contorted themselves <laughs> in their instruments it's this idea that if you listen to jazz you're going to be just influenced inundated with these negative evil type of tendencies she thought it should be in the jungle jazz didn't come out of classically trained conservatories right jazz came out as just your regular people it came out of places that may seem a little low down a little dirty a little gritty and that's the reason why she said, that's why we don't like, that's the main reason why we shouldn't like jazz because it came out of just the gutter. Now, Louis Armstrong was, he is a legend, an OG in the jazz game. So when she's talking about jazz, she's talking about him. This is the time that he was out doing his thing. He was coming up in jazz. And so it's interesting how the new generation in the, in the fifties or whatever, bebop came out in the 40s and 50s that he didn't see it as good music but when he was a young man coming up making jazz it was someone else who also thought what he was doing was slop very ironic so let's get into the sex part of this section so we're going to move from the 1920s and jazz we're going to move back to the 1950s but we're going to be talking about blues records so in Jet Magazine, they published a few articles about dirty music in the 1950s, about blues, rhythm and blues. But this particular article in 1952 was titled The Truth About Dirty Records. And so it was basically just ex exposing, not really exposing dirty blues records, but trying to let the readers know, don't be fooled. 
you might be listening to dirty records and you don't even know it. So apparently in the early 1950s, this was the height of blues, of, of dirty blues records. And it wasn't just that they were being sold because, I mean, there have been dirty blues records decades before. However, you could hear them, according to the article, you could hear them everywhere. You go out to eat, you hear them, <laughs> you walk down the street, juke the jukebox. You could hear these records. And so this is decades, a few decades after Lucille Bogan, you know, made her type of dirty music. That was a little more in your face, vulgar, more on the WAP side, like Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion. But they're saying in the 50s, what they were doing was these dirty blues records were masquerading under blues and race records. And race records were just black people singing and playing and doing comedy on records that were advertised for black people. So that's the race records. So they were trying to say, oh, this, this is not just a, a blues record that you just pick up, a race record that you just pick up. Like these are dirty, filthy records. And so they wanted to let the reader know, just in case you don't know, we want to give you some song titles. Now, a lot of these song titles or these songs, I should say, are songs from the old school blues people. The blues queens did the songs. Other people have done these songs. So they're kind of just redoing what already had been done, but they got a little more popular. So some of the titles were Hot Nuts. Now, that is pretty obvious. So I'm not going to be mad at that. 60 Minute Man. Now, 60 Minute Man went number one for 14 weeks on R&B chat. So black people loved us some 60 Minute Man. And it hit number 17 on the pop charts. So white people liked it too. There was Let Me Play With Your Poodle. Dirty Mother For, for You. <laughs> CC Rider. Lollipop Mama and Long John Blues. And I personally, I kind of like, you know, Dinah Washington does an excellent cover of Long John Blues. Also, the writer wants to let us know that if you don't know what the words mean, right, you think the words mean something else, you're going to innocently listen and you're going to be transported directly to your bedroom and you're going to hear, you don't know they're doing it, right? But they're describing rough sex. This is what the article says. <laughs> and, but you don't know because you don't know the words to look out for. So what would those words be? Well, rocking, roll, bite, rider, grind, and grass. Now everything except grass, I don't know what grass, I'm, I'm, okay, maybe I do know what grass means. I can see how some of those, I don't know how anybody could grind, I don't know how they could not know. But this wasn't just Jet Magazine, right? This is not just, oh, this one writer in Jet Magazine didn't like the music, so they wrote, wrote an article. No, because in the book, Too Heavy a Load, Black Women in Defense of Themselves, Deborah Gray Wright discusses what some Black women organizations or, or, or clubs and associations, what they thought about blues and rock and roll. People from those organizations like the National Association of Colored Women, they did not appreciate the lyrical content of the Black blues black women blues singers and then even when rock and roll came around they felt that that type of music portrayed black women in an extremely negative light it didn't represent the true essence of black women's womanhood doesn't that sound familiar i think it's the same thing people say today about black women artists so this idea that only in recent years 
female artists who create, whether it's a hip hop record or R&B record, that they're being too nasty. They're not representing women well. Like this idea is not new. It's not just this generation where people have said the black women are not representing what being a true lady is. Now, if we go to the 1970s, now for me, the 1970s is a time that seems very sexual to me. I'm thinking about black exploitation films. And I know like in the 60s, they had Woodstock and the hippies and all that free love. And But when I'm thinking of black artists, the 70s to me has a lot of sexual type records. And I feel like people in the 70s dressed a little sexual. I've seen the photo albums of everybody. There was an article about in 1976, titled, Is There Too Much Sex in Music Today? In 1976. So this is not a new story. This is not new. And they interviewed different uh, singers. And none of them, uh, they didn't all agree. On one hand, you had people like Isaac Hayes, Minnie Ripperton, Donna Summer. They didn't feel like it was too much sex in, in, like, in the current music. They were like, look. It's a part of life. This is just is what it is. Maybe back in the day, it was taboo, which we do. We actually know that back in the day, it wasn't taboo. Maybe people were pretending that it was taboo or nobody, but somebody was buying those dirty records in the 50s. But they were like, hey, it's a new day, new day and age. We cool with sex and music. You have people kind of in the middle. So you have people like Johnny Taylor, who was like, okay, the public likes to buy sex records that talk about sex, but he was like, "Well, you got to be tasteful, though." Now, his I think his most one of his most famous songs is "Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady While You Out Making Love." I guess that's kind of you know a little tasteful. It's it's not really that vulgar. It is kind of tasteful. Now, surprisingly for me, in the article, they interviewed a lot of artists who kind of said the same thing. But Shaka Khan. I don't know why Shaka Khan just, she just exudes sex appeal to me. And maybe that's why I kind of felt like, why is Shaka Khan saying that she's not about sex and music? Like she feels like if you're going to talk about sex, then it needs to be unintentional. And I don't know if that's the word. I don't know if they quoted her wrong, but unintentional. It's like, well, if you're talking about sex, don't you want it to be intentional? But she thinks it should be unintentional. So she did not like overt sexual references in songs she also didn't like moaning in songs so I guess that means she wasn't listening to the Marvin Gaye songs <laughs> she wasn't listening to Barry White Major Harris Love Won't Let Me Wait she definitely wasn't listening to Donna Summer <laughs> but she felt like if you moaning on a track that means that well not the artist is un- but she felt like it was unmusical to do something like that and Shaka Khan's opinion Kind of about, oh, if you're going to make a song about sex, it should be unintentional. Even though Tell Me Something Good, eh, I don't know, Miss Shaka. That Tell Me Something Good is a little little risque to me, but you know. But it made me think of the OJs, who have a song called Stairway to Heaven. And I don't know if it's because of Gamble and Huff. They just put their foot in the production, the way they wrote the lyrics. And to me, it kind of pulls a little gospel-esque. A lot of the time, I've seen TV shows. If you go on some comments or YouTube videos, sometimes people think about that song like it's like One Sweet Day, Mariah Carey and Voice to Man. But Stairway to Heaven is about sex. It's not about nobody who passed away. But for some reason, people use that song 
it makes them feel good and it's a tribute to somebody else. So I guess it's an unintentional <laughs> song about sex, but then people not using it for sex. So I don't know what the point is of having an unintentional sex song. I can see if you say it shouldn't be vulgar, right? I understand that. But unintentional, not sure. Even though walking the road of ecstasy, stealing a moment of pleasure, that seemed pretty obvious to me. But for some people, you know, it holds a place in their heart, a little more sentimental. And it's definitely, if you think about the Ohio players, heaven must be like this. That song is obviously about sex. Like you're not confused at all. But I find this so interesting because when I was growing up, I'm thinking everybody was growing up. I'm not even going to say it's me. If you grew up in the 80s, if you grew up in the 70s, they probably said the same exact thing. This generation is the worst. The artists today are too sexual. They're over-sexualized. They're too vulgar. What about the children? Their minds are going to be negatively influenced. But this article is quoting like the artists. These aren't just, oh, these just the black artists nobody knows. No, Donna Summer was a star. These are big artists that were popular in black music and with with all people so it's and i know people who were children when these when these when minnie ripperton was doing her thing and isaac case i know we all know people who were children or young people during that time and they love these songs <laughs> and i i don't know if they would agree with shaka khan or some people who may have thought the 70s was getting too sexual because when you're young and it's your generation you know it seems cool but with that said, let's go a little further about this idea. It's not a new idea about, you know, corrupting the mind of children. If we can move about 10 years later, we're in the 80s. Smokey Robinson recorded a song in 1985 called Be Kind to the Growing Mind. The Temptations were on it. And so he made this song in the 80s, right? Okay, well, he didn't make this song in 95 or 2005. Or he made this song in the 80s. So to him, in 1985, the music was getting out of control with the sexual references, okay? So according to him, he's like, everybody should be able to hear music. You know, you, you sit down with your grandma and the two-year-old and everybody, you turn the music on and everybody should be able to enjoy it. Now, this also was the time in the 80s, this was the time that they started putting those warning labels on music about sexually explicit content or drug-related violent content. And this came from the Parent Music Resource Center, <laughs> A group of some wives, I think it was some wives of rich men in D.C., rich white men, probably. And that's that, you know, that we all know, at least if you were a millennial, all you've ever known, all I ever remember is the parental advisory sticker. I don't remember not seeing it on explicit content. And so Smokey Robinson felt that way. He was like, look, the, the lyrics today in 1985, this type of music they putting out in the 85s. It disregards the minds and morals of the children. I'm not sure what songs he was talking about, but the PMRC, they had a Senate hearing in 1985 and they provided a list. It's all genres, a list of the filthy 15. And now a few songs on this list. <laughs> Some of you may be, may be one of your favorite songs, but they had Prince, Darling Nikki, and they cited it for sex and masturbation they're like this song should be bad and then you had the mary jane girls in my house and i look i was so shocked to read that i was like i i've heard in my house all my life it's not like my favorite song 
but I guess I only know the chorus in my house. I don't know the, 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 I guess I never paid attention. I don't know the chorus at all. I guess I didn't think it was about sex. When I think of all night long by the Mary Jane girls. Now that is obviously about sex. Didn't know, but it's interesting that this is 1985 and I bet you, I already know if you were young in 1985 or you, you were in your twenties, you know, if you like Prince, Prince was your guy. Or you love Mary Jane girls. And you probably didn't think that the music was bad or oversexual. But when you probably, you know, went over to the, the 90s came, then you probably were like, wait a minute, this 90s music, this little Kim is out of control. You know, every generation seems to think that, no, this is the generation where it's getting out of control. But it to me, it seems like ever since the 1920s, people have been claiming that things are just a mess. And that actually brings me to our next section, Pastime Paradise. So we're going to start this section out, Pastime Paradise, in the 90s. And there was an article in Jet Magazine that said, why is 70s music so popular in the 90s? And this was in 1996. And it talks about how you can hear 70s music all over the country, sports arenas, Rap artists are sampling 70s music, disco music, which everybody said was like, we off disco. Now you hear the disco on the old school stations. But the 70s just seemed so popular in the 90s. Jet Magazine did what they always do best. They go to the stars themselves. And so they interview a lot of stars to ask them why they think 70s music, 70s music is so popular. So one of the first people they talked to was Eugene Record. He was the lead singer of the Shy Lights. That's... Um, have you seen uh, that group? Now, he told Jet Magazine that the reason why he thinks 70s music is so popular in the 90s is because the world is thirsting for real music, real love songs. In 1996, not just even that year, from 1990 to 1996, we all can probably give you a list of amazing, beautiful love songs <laughs> that aren't necessarily like horrible compared to the 70s. But he felt that the influence on the recent music on the youth was, was devastating. And now he did say he liked Luther and Babyface, although they came out in the 80s. You know, so I don't know if they count. But he says that the children today are in, in 1996 were missing out on what music really is. He said it's no creativity. They just pushing buttons. But he goes on about how the 70s, they use real instruments. They have musicians. And it's just way more technology being used. But isn't it interesting <laughs> that the 70s was just like, oh, is it getting too much sex in it? Now he's saying the 90s ain't got enough real love songs. But I bet you if the 90s is your decade, you like, uh-uh, that's when the real music was. Well, he said it was the 70s, y'all. They interviewed Curtis Mayfield. We love Curtis Mayfield. He's just said good music is good music. He didn't have anything bad to say about people in the 90s. He liked the 90s music. The only issue he had, technology, that it altered the structure of the music. So he, he just he doesn't think that the children in the 90s, young people in the 90s were getting real quality music because of all the technology. So similar to Eugene Record, Cuba Gooding Sr., Cuba Gooding Jr.'s daddy of the main ingredient, everybody plays the fool sometime. He was saying that, well, people like 70s music because after a stressful work day, <laughs> you want to be soothed and not just hear loud drums. I don't know what that meant because I was just like, it was a lot of loud drums in the 70s and every 70s song wasn't soothing, but I don't know. 
And basically the article is just like, well, the reason why the 70s is so popular in the 90s is because it's real music and the 90s music isn't real music. 70s music is not mechanical. It's more heartfelt. It's more soulful. <laughs> like, I bet you some of y'all are like, uh-uh, let me get my playlist out. It's a whole lot of 90s songs. You can point to a boys to band song, but Whitney, you can point to a lot of songs in the 90s that were very heartfelt. But technology, that's a fair argument that, you know, less live musicians, less instrumentation. So I'll give them that. So let's actually go back to the 70s. So we were talking about the 70s and the 90s, but let's go back to the 70s. So disco, we haven't talked about disco yet. So there was an article about disco in 1977 asking, is disco music a passing fad? So again, they talked to the different artists. So you have people like Denise Williams and Grover Washington. They felt like, well, disco has a place in our music because people want to dance. And they're saying, but you know, other music can still go on because the issue is disco is becoming so popular. Are the black artists kind of being pushed out or forced to sing disco? They were saying like, hey, let people do disco, but also there should be a place for other genres. Then you had somebody like Michael Henderson. And Michael Henderson uh, sings on a lot of Norman Connor songs, but the most popular that you would know him would be You Are My Starship. That's him singing on the Norman Connors record. And he called disco welfare music. I said, well, I'm offended and I wasn't even born yet. And he said, and I quote, after you play that a while, you say there must be more to this. People are checking themselves out and getting into music more. I think you're going to see some better music coming out of the cities after the disco music phase. Well, I don't know because that was that was in the 80s and Smokey Robinson and, and, the, and, and the women went to the Senate with the filthy records. So I don't know. <laughs> and then lastly, Brass Construction, which was a band, Mickey Grudge from Brass Construction. What now? What he said, I really like. He was like, well, hey, look, music trends, they travel. He think they tra- He thinks they travel in tens of years, right? You had rock in the 60s. You had disco in the 70s. The 80s will be something else, and we're going to be doing whatever's popular. Whatever is the, the popular thing of the day, that's what our band is going to be doing. And so let's be honest. A lot of artists get into what's popular at some point. They contribute to the music that people say isn't great. People say, well, the music not that good. Some artists who maybe came out in a previous decade or previous generation, usually they they go along and do the same thing. So many artists in the late 70s, artists who came out before disco came out. Everybody had a disco song. Michael Jackson had a disco song. The Jacksons had a disco song. Diana Ross had her disco. Johnny Taylor did some disco. Earth, Wind & Fire, The Wisp, everybody had a little disco song. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, there was a concern, I guess you would say, about how disco was impacting black music. And so I found another article by about kind of like this conference of like, you know, black music executives and Larkin Arnold, who's a music executive. They asked him about like, man, what do you think about disco impacting black artists? And maybe some artists at these record labels are being forced to make disco songs. And he said, it will hurt the mediocre average ballad singer but not the good ones. I was like, well, it's good to know that it was mediocre people back in the day too. Cause everybody claimed <laughs> that today ain't no more good singers today. And y'all know Jasmine Sullivan can sing. So I ain't no good singers. Good to know that in the seventies, it was some mediocre singers. Now, once again, they don't never tell you who they're talking about. Cause you can't do that. But I would like to know <laughs> now 
we've been talking about the 70s, like your 50s and stuff. Let's go to the 2000s, but early 2000s, just 2001. We're going to talk about Neo Soul. They interviewed a lot of Neo Soul artists, just kind of about what they thought about their music. So, you know, you had Erykah Badu, Joe Scott, you had all the people. But I want to like touch on a few of them who said some very interesting things to me. And they kind of tied to what we talked about earlier. So they first, they uh, kind of profiled Maxwell. This was in Jet Magazine. And Maxwell basically said, hey, I'm just trying to do good music, music with substance. They call him like, hey, he's one of the founding fathers of the soul revival. Now, what's interesting is Maxwell's album came out in 1996. It's interesting that someone like Maxwell was out in the 90s. The older generation at that point who were popular like 20 years before, they didn't see that talent the same way. There's somebody like Music Soul Child. Music Soul Child was like, I'm here to bring the soul back to soul music. And he said that the last few years, like that would have been the 99 and the 2000s, the last few years that the music had been watered down, he wants to make music real again. Now, once again, just like I said in the article, just like here, I know you got a list of songs from 1999, 2000. I'm thinking of Brandy, Monica. It's all type of albums that were made in like 90, the late 90s, early 2000s that I think was great music. It wasn't all Neo Soul, but I don't think it was watered down music. Not all of it, but that's what music felt. So he's like, I'm coming up to make sure we bring the soul back to it. And he felt that the contemporary R&B was oversaturated with sex. Of course, that's every generation. He's right. We in the 2000s, we done walked through. We was the sex in the 50s. <laughs> sex in the 70s. Sex in the 80s. Too much of the Now we in the 2000s. He felt like it was too much sex and materialism, which is a little something that wasn't really mentioned in the other decades that I found. But if we were to look back, which was what, 2000, almost 20 years ago, so many amazing songs that came out. But see, at that time, the people who were in it didn't feel it. Like, they're like, oh, this is not as good. We got to bring it back to the old school. Always bringing it back to the past when it was beautiful. Everything was great, <laughs> allegedly. And then lastly, D'Angelo. Now, D'Angelo, to me, had the best answer. He didn't have, well, he still was young. All of them were young, but he didn't have that old man, get off my lawn kind of answer. And he said, my goal is to take the sound of black music to another level. To me, soul music is black music. And that's what I'm making, soul music. And he's like, I'm not putting no limits on soul. He says, so I'm going to do rock. I'm going to have gospel harmonies. I'm going to add some hip hop to my music. I'm going to have live jazz in my music. Soul music is limitless. And I love the fact that D'Angelo was so open. Not to, he wasn't trying to recreate the past, right? He wasn't stuck in the past. Like I'm trying to go back to how it used to be when it was better. He's like, Hey, I'm going to take a little bit of what used to be. And I'm going to take a little bit over here and a little bit over there and a little bit of this other new stuff and put it into some new stuff for me. And I loved it. And that brings me to our last section, evolution of genres. For this last section, we're going to actually come back to jazz music. In 1969, in Ebony Magazine, uh, A.B. Spellman wrote an article called The Revolution of Sounds. And he also gives us a little slight history about jazz music. And he talks about what we already have discussed. 
It came popular in the 1920s, but it was a, it had a low life connotation. It wasn't exactly a dignified type of music. What's so interesting that he goes into, not interesting, but just funny to me. So now we had churches who would be like against jazz music. Makes sense, right? This is what churches do. But they had anti-jazz societies, which I'm like, why? It seemed like a waste of time. But anti-jazz societies, police will close down, you know, different places because people are immoral, crazy and undignified. This is what they say jazz was. When somebody like John Coltrane comes along and he's like, hey, uh, maybe I want to do something different. He comes in and he starts thinking about jazz, not just like I'm just playing music, but it's also about me being a black person. And the article says that white critics called him anti-jazz. I'm like, isn't it funny that at the beginning they didn't like jazz? <laughs> then when they started liking jazz, John Coltrane come out like, well, we don't like this type of jazz. So now he's anti-jazz. <laughs> Everything that jazz was supposed to be, that jazz had been for that from the 20s and the 30s, when the 40s came along, it says that it was time for a revolution. And so Bebop, which he says that in here that white journalists actually named the music Bebop, which I did not know. I was like, what What kind of... So Bebop is not even <laughs> something that the black musicians made up. Just roll with it, I guess. But then he says that Bebop was a revolution against the conventions of the 30s. But by the time the 40s were almost over, it was like Revolution Central. Everybody was doing their own thing. They were evolving for what from what jazz had to be. And they were trying all these different things. So you have, you did have Charlie Parker. You had Thelonious Monk, Yusef Latif, Sun Ra. Very interesting people. If you play a Louis Armstrong song from 1925 and then you play something from 1955, I mean, those are going to be the, the type of music you're hearing is going to be different. And of course, you can't forget Miles Davis. The one thing that jazz early on was hated for or disliked was that it causes people to get like people couldn't stop moving. Like you, you want to grow. You want to you want to dance. You want to get up and you moving your body. You know, people with bodies, people got issues with people's bodies. So you know how that goes. And I think like with bebop, you really can't dance to some of it. And so maybe Louis Armstrong is thinking wait a minute, jazz is supposed to be something you can tap and groove and go. And maybe some of the bebop music just wasn't doing it, but that's okay. It's okay that your jazz people could dance and shake and move. And then maybe some of this newer jazz people just sit and listen and it can be just as fulfilling. Now I want to move to 1985 because Wynton Marcellus was interviewed in 1985. And Wynton Marcellus is a jazz musician. He plays a trumpet. And his brother, Branford Marcellus. If you ever heard Shinese's I Love Your Smile, you've heard Blow Branford, Blow. That's his brother. So anyway, Wynton Marcellus was young, up, you know, young jazz artist in the 80s. And it's a totally different thing. So I'm just reading you all this article from 1969 that's talking about John Coltrane and all these other amazing jazz artists, musicians who came and who kind of flipped it up and put a revolution, evolved what jazz was into something new. And by 1985, 
when Marcellus is saying, well, black people done checked out on the, uh, on the jazz music now. <laughs> black people really aren't into it like they used to be, right? And you know, it's probably, of course, it's not everybody. There are black people who probably still like jazz music. But it's probably way more white people, too. And so he was saying, like, man, I really want black people to check out jazz music. And I want them to appreciate the genius of some of, like, the found the foundation setters, if you want to call it that. So he listed out some people. He said, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Clifford Brown, and Thelonious Monk. Now, isn't it interesting? Everybody he listed is in previous different decades, different time periods in jazz. And he can appreciate the genius of all of them. But now they maybe didn't appreciate each other's <laughs> genius or like the music. But that always happens, right? Music had to evolve. And that evolvement from the 30s to the 40s and from 40s to 50s to 60s, how the jazz evolved. It was worth it because somebody like Wynton Marcellus, he can appreciate and he knows what's possible with jazz because of all those musicians laid, put the, laid their mark, put their mark down. Now, there's one thing that he did say that for this section makes it make sense. Those guys wanted it to die, referring to the critics. But an art form does not die. A period of an art form may die but not an art form. And jazz is an art form. Maybe nobody great like Charlie Parker is here right now, but that doesn't mean it's dead. It's hard for us to accept that art forms that we love in a different generation, people experiment with different things. And sometimes those things are, it seems less musical, right? Oh, you're using more technology. Or people not singing as well. It's always something. But, the art form is not dead. Like the period might be dead, but the art form is not dead. And to add on to that, Donna Summer, when I was talking about disco earlier, I didn't mention anything from Donna Summer, but she was in the article, but I wanted to separate it out because when they asked her, like, do you think disco is a fad? This is 1977. And she goes on to say, look, disco is a $4 billion business. It's growing. And she believes that it's going to continue to appear. Then she addresses the whole thing about disco being, you know, welfare music, like Michael Henderson <laughs> likes to call it. And so she says, as far as the music is concerned, just as disco evolved from the Latin R&B and rock genres, so too will disco again assimilate all these music feelings and grow into a new art form. What she was saying happened. Now, disco's at the late 70s. When you get into the 80s, I immediately was like, oh, house music, Chicago, Detroit, techno music. That came out of disco, right? And obviously it wasn't just the disco, just like disco took those pieces of R&B, right? It didn't take all of R&B. It took a little bit of R&B and it took other pieces. That's what house music and techno music did. And they blew up in the 1980s. And now electronic dance music is one of the most popular genres. In the world, even though it don't be no black people doing it all the time, they be in Vegas, it don't be no black people, but that's okay, you know, but that is a genre. EDM is basically the little baby of disco, house, techno, 
hip hop, reggae, all of those put together, they all influence what we know as electronic dance dance music. And that's an evolution coming from Latin music, R&B music, and then, boom, evolving into something else. So our last section for the evolution of genres is soul music, of course. So Laurent Bennett Jr., who's an executive editor of Ebony, he's wrote, he wrote several books, amazing author. He wrote in 1961 an article titled The Soul of Soul. And similarly to jazz music, or not jazz, but uh, bebop music kind of getting its name from critics or journalists, uh, soul music got its name from the publicist. I thought that was interesting. (laughs) But when I thought of soul music, usually I'm thinking of, I usually almost exclusively think about voices, maybe except for like Ray Charles, because I remember the movie and his music was gospel music. And so usually I'm thinking of gospel and soul, gospel to soul, right? That's the evolution. You went from gospel, you went to soul. And I saw a tweet by um, author and professor, Ebony Thomas, and someone was talking to her about whether they like sci-fi or fantasy. And she said she sees sci-fi and fantasy as fraternal twins. And so I was like, I actually like that analogy. I saw gospel and soul music as fraternal twins, mostly in the vocals and the emotion side of it. But what this article talked about was how jazz, even though it's talking about soul, it mentions jazz. How in the 50s, these jazz musicians who are in New York and, you know, they're classically trained, they know how to play all the classical music. They started to go back to their roots, if you want to call it that. I think I want to call it that. And part of it is probably the world, too. Right. Once again, what's going on around them as black artists. And so what they did was. They went from just playing kind of this classical type jazz to they're like, well, look at Mahalia Jackson. What's she singing about? Ray Charles. And so then what did they do? They turned back to the the church or not necessarily the church, but back to tradition. Cries, chants, shouts, call and response, the choirs, all of that. And so they stopped worrying about those, the article says Bartok and Schoenberg, like all these classical jazz, or I don't know if we call them jazz, but classical musicians in history. And then they start saying, well, let me listen to Thomas A. Dorsey, you know, precious, take my hand, precious Lord, Roberta Martin, Howlin' Wolf. And then those musicians are kind of like the foundation for soul music as far as the music part. They're a part of it. And Lerone Bennett, he has a way with words. And I really love what he says. He tries to describe what soul is. And so he says, soul, a certain way of feeling, a certain way of expressing oneself, a certain way of being. Similarly, Ray Charles or Mahalia Jackson singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star is soul par excellence. Soul is the interpretation, not the song. The man, not the music. The feeling not the title. It is as old as Bessie Smith and as new as Aretha Franklin. And at this time, 1961, Aretha Franklin was just starting her career in 
secular, if you want to call it, <laughs> in soul music. And also, I think to give you a better understanding, I want you all to listen to Perry Como. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He has a song called It's Impossible. Very nice, standard 1960s, 50s, whatever it came out. Little love song, very Frank Sinatra-ish, you know, pretty song. First dance at a wedding, cute. It's a cute song. But then go, after you listen to his song, go listen to the cover by The New Birth. And that right there is the definition. It describes perfectly that soul is the interpretation, not the song. If you sing a twinkle, twinkle, little star, if you sing a Mary had a little lamb, you know how black people say, well, she could sing the phone book. <laughs> she could sing the ABCs to me. That's what soul is. You can't fake it. You can't scream it out. It's just, you know, it's kind of like either you got it or you don't. But Lerone Bennett says that the soul movement saved contemporary jazz and it came out of a reaction against the classical. All this is so interesting to me because everyone has their own opinion, right? Especially with jazz. It's just like, well, the original old time jazz was better. Then you got swing. And then it's like, here comes bebop. And then it's like, you know, now they're saying like, look, the people who were classically trained, when they got that soul in them and they started turning back to tradition and their roots, they started to basically say, we're going to put emotion and feeling over perfect technique. That's what soul is. And every generation and every genre, people are doing what they feel. And sometimes what people feel and what they're doing, sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is embarrassing. Whatever it is. I just love that in this country and all that goes on with being a black person, music is the one place that we connect, that everybody has a song that they can listen to, that they can sing, that they can write, that can bring them comfort, joy, no matter the situation. And I think that is what needs to be praised. So in summary, I think that there are about just two things that all that I mentioned sums up what's really going on when people say, well, music back in the day was better. Number one, it's nostalgia, right? We all have our preferences. We like certain productions. We like certain vocals. We like certain genres. Look, I bet you if you go find a song that came out in 2010, go to YouTube. It's going to be somebody on there like, I wish music would go back to being like this. <laughs> okay, 10 years ago. Now, personally, since 2000, I think around 2012, I started to feel like, man, all these new artists. First, it was with some of the pop artists, the white pop artists. They had this certain style of singing that was very like, what's going on here? But it's another type of singing. It's a, it's like a weird, I don't want to call it weird. It's an interesting vocal thing. I don't know what it is. But one artist started doing it and another one and all the black people, all the new black people sound like that, except like her, you know, some other artists. But I'm like, man, so I'm a hypocrite too. You know, I want, I wanted to go back to the time. Before 2012, when even if you were a mediocre singer, you still just sang. You didn't do all this extra cutting off your words and stuff. Anyway, the second thing that I noticed is, and I think this will always be here, respectability politics, especially, especially with black people. 
being dignified is like number one. It's always important. And people are hypocritical when it comes to being dignified as well, too. And I think it is admirable to have dignity, of course. But I also think diversity in music is good. You think about Negro spirituals, blues, soul. People are classically trained. Everybody, all of that, those, some of those songs came out of different experiences of Black people living in America and other places. And sometimes those artists singing the dignified music or they're not playing slop. That's bebop. <laughs> Sometimes these are toxic people, untrustworthy, misogynist. You know, just because they're entertaining you doesn't mean that the music is somehow making them better people. No. And some people who are singing risque, filthy songs, whatever, they may be kind, respectful, and caring. And they're just trying to live out their liberation through their music in whatever way. I think they should have support and guidance more than, you know, a Louis Armstrong saying basically, you're trash. Your music is trash. I'm moving on. There needs to be a balance. Good music is always going to be around. Every decade has evolved in different art forms. And there is good music in every decade. Just like Whitney Marcellus and Donna Summer said, the art form never dies. And this year, the end of this year, in 2021, it might begin another decade into a new art forms of our favorite genres. And I'm sure Generation Z, who's already getting to the age where they're having children, and they're going to have children who are going to have music that they think is horrible. And they're going to be like, I wish I could go back to 2020. (laughs) Definitely, they're going to do that. And it's going to go on and on. But what I really want everyone to do is I want you to, you know, if you come across a song you don't like, if you hear something somebody can't sing, always remember that somebody thought the same way about your generation. Well, now we have made it to the end of the podcast. If you stay with me with this long podcast, thank you so much. If you have to listen a couple times, thank you as well. As always, I want to give you some resources before I go because you can't just tell people to Google because the first thing on Google could be something that's out of context. Don't give y'all the information. And if you go on YouTube, somebody just, if, you, if you're a good orator, if you're a good speaker, you can convince people of anything. It don't have to have no bibliography. So I don't want y'all out here getting got. So for the reading resources, I recommend Black Pearls, Blues Queens of the 1920s by Daphne Duval Harrison. It's a great book. The book about black women in defense of themselves. That's by Deborah Gray White. That's another great book. If you just want to learn about black women, it's not about music, but it kind of talks about the whole idea of womanhood and being dignified and these themes that tend to be in our community and society in general. It's not new. It's been going on forever. A.B. Spellman, who wrote one of the articles about Bebop, he has a book called The Four Lives in the Bebop Business. And lastly, Google Books for free. You can go to Google Books, type in Jet Magazine, type in Ebony Magazine, and you can find the archives of Jet and Ebony Magazine. That's how I was able to find most of this information. And it's through 2008. And we thank the National Museum of African American History for not snatching it down (laughs) since they do own the archives now. But you can go look at any Jet magazine starting in the night or Ebony starting in the 1950s. And you can read articles and you can see what was going on back in the day. 
So those are all my reading resources. For my visual resources, I suggest you go to Netflix if you have Netflix and watch the evolution the evolution of hip hop. It may be on other platforms because I think it was a Canadian show first. So it's on Netflix in America. If you're not in America, it might be available elsewhere. Amazing documentary on how <laughs> hip hop evolved and how the art form changed. Um, I particularly enjoyed the New Orleans portion, not because it just talked about the artists that I know from New Orleans, but that it kind of talked a little bit about the culture of New Orleans around music and dancing. And I really enjoyed that. So I suggest that. Another visual visual resource that I have is a video. It's a YouTube video of this lady. I think she's a music coach, but she's describing the vocal, the singing that I don't like since like 2012 that type of singing, she literally teaches you how to do it. I'm leaving a link to the video. You can go watch it. And I'm sorry if your favorite artist sang like that. But I just want the girls to sing clearly so I can understand them. Lastly, I have some audio for you. I created a Spotify playlist of most of the artists I've mentioned. I tried to put most people. I could have missed a few people, but over four hours of music. So if you ever wanted to hear, let me hear a bebop song. Or let me hear a disco song. I have it on that playlist. Also, at the end, I threw on a few new artists. So if you're one of those people who say, this generation doesn't produce any good singers and music, I added on a couple of people who came out within at least the last five or six years, or at least got popular. They may have been grinding for a while, but they've really been coming out the last five or six years. And I think they make really great music. So I have added these resources in the description of the podcast, but you can also see a list of them on moretothequotepodcast.com for this episode. Please don't forget to rate me on Apple Podcasts. It helps me get discovered. If you watch me on YouTube, please like and comment. Follow me on social media, Instagram at moretothequotepodcast, Twitter at moretothequote. Let me know what you thought about the episode. And if you have any quotes you want me to say for a random quote of the podcast, let me know. Well, that concludes our episode, and I hope you learned, question, and consider the things that I and the voices I amplify said surrounding today's quote. After doing those three things, I hope you come to your own confident conclusion. Don't forget to check out all the resources and subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and YouTube. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of There's More to the Quote.